Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We hope that you are having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder Show each week right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or look for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll answer your questions today in our mailbag segment. You can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can bring your faith into the public arena. Today's episode, we're talking about the recent Supreme Court decision in the case of Bostock v. Clayton County, in which the court decided that sex discrimination in the workplace extends to include discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. We're blessed to be speaking with Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation, who has written on the far-reaching impact of this decision. In our mailbag segment, we're covering questions about voting and why some issues, such as Minnesota's marriage amendment, got put to a public vote, but there are not referenda on other important matters. And stick around for the Bricklayer segment, where we're talking about the impact of COVID-19 on Catholic schools. Right now, we're joined on the line by Dr. Ryan Anderson. He is Senior Research Fellow in American Principles and Public Policy at the Heritage Foundation, where he researches and writes about marriage, bioethics, religious liberty, and political philosophy. He is the author of the very important book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, as well as Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's got an important position with the University of Dallas that I'm forgetting, but uh, another feather in the cap for that fine institution. Welcome to the program, Dr. Anderson. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Very happy to be with you today. So help us unpack this decision that seems kind of like the Roe v. Wade of gender identity ideology. The Supreme Court concluded that civil rights laws that bar sex discrimination in the workplace also extend to those who identify as gay and transgender. Let's leave aside the debates about separation of powers, textualism, what the court does and its role in saying what the law is and what it should be. What is the court communicating about sexual identity, whether intentionally or unwittingly? What happened in this case, Ryan? Sure. I mean, so, so the bottom line here is that the court has more or less said that if you act on the basis of the conviction that we're created male and female, and that male and female are created for each other, you may very well be, quote, discriminating on the basis of sex, which would have come as news to each and every member of Congress who voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was the law that they were supposedly adjudicating. Right. So leaving aside all the arguments about judicial activism, separation of powers, and all that. Like, the substantive concern here is that when we ban discrimination on the basis of sex, uh, what do we mean? We mean you need to treat men and women equally. Uh, You can't favor men over women. You can't treat girls as second-class athletes or second-class students, right? That's why we say no discrimination on the basis of sex. But that doesn't mean that you have to deny that men and women are meant for each other in marriage, or that men can't really become women or women can't really become men. One of the the cases, so you know, kind of get to brass tacks, what was the case about? There was a funeral home uh, director, and he had worked for the owner of the funeral home for six years. The man was in his 60s, and for those six years, he identified as a man. He showed up for work every day wearing a suit and a tie, and then he gave the owner a letter saying, I'm going to take a two-week vacation, and when I come back, I'm going to be dressed as a woman. And the owner said, 
you know, look, I care about you. You know, you've been my employee for six years. Like, you know, we have a good relationship, but it's not going to work out if two weeks from now you're wearing a dress as you interact with grieving families, right? That just isn't going to be a helpful role for you as a funeral director. And so he let the employee go. The employee then said that was sex discrimination. And that has nothing to do with treating men better than women or women better than men. Uh, what it was saying is that, you know, men who present as women, some jobs, that's just not going to be compatible, right? And, and obviously, if you think about a situation where you have grieving families, that strikes me as a highly plausible situation. Right? If I'm the owner of a funeral home, this isn't going to work out for the families. And so the court has now told us that that constitutes sex discrimination, which raises the question of what about all of the other laws that ban discrimination on the basis of sex? For example, Title IX. This is a law passed in 1979 or 1972 that says no discrimination in education on the basis of sex. If that now reaches to what Justice Gorsuch referred to as transgender status, what does that mean for um, athletics at school? What does that mean for bathrooms, locker rooms, dorm rooms, uh, hotel rooms for overnight field trips? You know, all of a sudden, does this now mean that schools need to treat students in accordance with their transgender status? Otherwise, they might be guilty of sex discrimination, right? That's some of the the far-reaching consequences here. Dr. Anderson, maybe you could help unpack some of the logic here for us. It seems reasonable to make a distinction uh, in law between a man who or a woman who declares their biological sex and a man or woman who pretends to be the opposite sex, that that's not sex discrimination when you terminate someone in employment for pretending to be the opposite sex. But is it the logic of this decision that, functionally speaking, from the standpoint of civil rights law, men who say they are women are treated as women? Is that really what's going on here? Is that the logic of this decision? So it's interesting. The logic of this decision is that Gorsuch has to say that this employee was male, or at very least assigned male at birth. But because he was not being treated in accordance with his gender identity, which was female, he was being treated differently than other people who were assigned female at birth, right? So the logic of the opinion only makes sense on the supposition that this isn't actually a woman, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. how you get the difference between men who identify as women are treated differently than women who identify as women. And that's the sex discrimination, according to Gorsuch. But the implication of this is that you have to treat men who identify as women as if they are women, even though the logic for what makes it sex discrimination is that they aren't women, right? And a couple of people have pointed this out in essays that they've written, that the owner of the funeral home got in trouble with the law for doing precisely what Justice Gorsuch's opinion rests on, treating the employee as a man. Hmm. How did we get here, Dr. Anderson, from the, a few years ago, this would have seemed far-fetched, um, a slippery slope that people said was way too slippery, seeming like uh, it was, was a far-fetched thing among culture warriors who were really trying to undermine greater progress and the dignity of people who identify as gay or transgender. Now we have a Supreme Court with a conservative majority 
Uh, very little opposition out in the mainstream conservative movement to what's going on. Uh, your book is actually one of the very few secular-oriented resources on the question. How did how did this cultural tsunami get us? How did this happen to where we are at the point today with this decision? Yeah, great question. And, and you're exactly right that you know five ten years ago, even kind of like socially conservative thinkers thought. Oh, this would never happen. Bridge too far, right? Correct. Um, I didn't really start thinking about gender ideology in a serious way until um, the Bruce Jenner interview. Mm-hmm. Um, back when he was still going by Bruce, right? I mean, so the, the, the interview in 2020 with Diane Sawyer, uh, Bruce was still going by Bruce. And that made headlines. Um, and, and I remember this was going to be a big deal because I was at a friend's um, wedding that night. Uh, it was a Saturday night. And I got a phone call from the producer of George Stephanopoulos's, you know, This Week with George Stephanopoulos. And I was supposed to go on the show the next morning, Sunday morning talk show, to talk about Obergefell, uh, the Supreme Court case on gay marriage, which was having oral arguments the next day. And the producer said, you know, George wants you to talk about Bruce Jenner, too. And I remember my response was, who's Bruce Jenner? And like, what does this have to do with gay marriage? And then she's like, oh, you missed the interview last night. You know, I've been at the rehearsal dinner and I don't watch 2020. Uh, but she's like, you know, Bruce Jenner just announced that, you know, he's going to be transitioning and he's going to be identifying as a woman. And, and that's when I realized, oh, they're pivoting. The activists are pivoting from the LGB part of the acronym to the T part of the acronym. And, you know, for 20 years, we had had a discussion about the LGB part, right? We had been talking about gay marriage uh, since the latter part of the 1990s. I think the first um, gay marriage case was like 1999 or something in Hawaii or Vermont, maybe 1997, right? And so we're now in 2015. They're hearing the Obergefell case at the Supreme Court. And what I realized was the activists know they have Justice Kennedy's vote. So they know they're about to win on their goal of redefining marriage. But they haven't really been talking about transgender equality. And these groups are LGBT groups. And so what does the T mean? And that's when I started doing research and then that when Harry Became Sally book came out in 2017, 2018, I forget now if it was 17 or 18 when it, when it finally came out in print, because it took a while to do the research, do the writing. And that's when I discovered this is a combination of a misguided gender ideology. So there's bad thinking here going on, new technologies, synthetic testosterone, plastic surgery, right? Things that only with the advent of these surgical techniques and these hormonal uh, resources, could you even talk about turning boys into girls and girls into boys? And then the third part, just power politics, right? This is not a grassroots movement led by soccer moms. This is a top-down movement led by elites. And so what did we see the very next year, 2016? The Obama administration said that the word sex means gender identity. And that's when we got the Dear Colleague letter from the Obama Department of Justice and Department of Education saying all schools need to redo sports and bathrooms and locker rooms. That's when we got uh, from the De- um, Department of Health and Human Services and tr- uh, transgender health care mandate, uh, Section 1557 of Obamacare, a new interpretation of that section. This was a well-oiled machine. And, you know, some of this was happening at the state and local level prior to this. There's a famous um, school district in, in Minnesota, so you would, you would know this better than me, where this, where this had happened at a charter school um, around the same time. Right? And so this was percolating under the radar, and then as soon as the activists won on the gay marriage case, they pivoted to the transgender part, to the T part, 
And then all expectations were that Obama would initiate this, Hillary Clinton would win the November election, and then for the next four to eight years, they would be solidifying these gains. And instead, the Trump administration came into office. They undid many of these things through the the agencies that they now control. And they thought by putting Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh on the bench that it would protect us from judicial activism. And that's where they were wrong. Right? That's where many in the conservative movement uh, were wrong, who assumed that Gorsuch and Roberts would be solid on this case because they claimed to be originalists, textualists, umpires who call balls and strikes and uh, Justice Roberts' um, uh, own words. And then all of a sudden they give us an entirely new meaning to the law, and it's going to have far-reaching consequences. People have talked about uh, the Roberts court uh, being generally friendly to business, and they're even nicknamed the business bros. But uh, court, you, you rightly pointed out the role of elites in a top-down dynamic. Uh, Daryl Paul has written about uh, the elites in corporate America and them being involved in this as well. But I want to I get back to the corporations and corporate America in a moment because they have a powerful role in shaping and changing culture. But how did we get to the point, though, where normally conservative judges and then normal people in the streets are embracing gender ideology and, and giving into this biological lie, this culture of unreality that we're living in. So you talked about the, po- the politics, the elite machinations, but at the, at the level of, you know, Joe Bag of Donuts in person in the pew, uh, we're having trouble talking cogently about these issues. How is it that the movement in the culture uh, changed and, and moved forward so rapidly? What would you attribute that to? Sure. I mean, so the, the, the deepest answer here goes back to like, uh, the end of the medieval period with William of Ockham. Right? <laughs> so if, you, if you want to talk yeah. about like nominalism and, yeah. and then how that leads to voluntarism, um, that's the deepest kind of like historical intellectual root. The more proximate cause, uh, I think, is the sexual revolution, uh, which in many ways is a nominalist, voluntarist, and then also I would add dualist mm-hmm. um, way of thinking, right? So there's like a Gnostic form of dualism in which my body is just a vehicle. Uh, it's just a instrument of myself, right? And somehow myself and my body are two different things, and I can use my body to gratify myself. And, and to a certain extent, that's the logic that you get out of the sexual revolution. It's that consenting adults should do with their bodies whatever consenting adults want to do with their bodies, right? And so we can use our bodies sexually to gratify ourselves, whether it's with hookup cohabitation, pornography, one-night stand, right? Think of all the things um, that came out of the sexual revolution with respect to our sexual choices and kind of like the traditional understanding of our sexual choices being like our sexual behavior. But then that very quickly led to our sexual identity, right? So if I can use my body to, you know, gratify myself sexually in my actions, why not also in my identity? And the problem here is that we've now conflated a very real condition of gender dysphoria, right? There are people who suffer from a discomfort in their own bodies, and they're not making it up. They're not choosing to have it. Um, But they're being given bad advice from the gender ideologues who tell them, oh, no, 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 no. Gender exists across the spectrum, and gender is fluid, and you can be agender and polygender and gender ambidextrous. And so the answer to your discomfort isn't to try to identify the underlying cause, but it's to embrace that you're, you know, gender non-binary or you're transgender or, or fill in the blank, right? And so I don't want to 
um, suggest in any way that people who are suffering from gender dysphoria are the cause of this problem, right? And uh, they're being, to my mind, they're the victims, right? And, and they're being victimized by activists and ideologues who are giving them bad answers and who then are, um, you know, engaging in procedures that really do serious damage to their bodies, right? Um, but the reason why so many Americans buy into this, um, I think, is because we've accepted a sort of lifestyle liberalism in which we should do with our bodies whatever we want to do, provided it's consensual. Um, and so there's no truth. There's no built-in truth to our bodies. There's no meaning to our bodies. What John Paul saw when he gave the Wednesday audiences that became the theology of the body, um, we need something like that for a philosophy of the body. Right? We need to help people see that it's not just because God says so, right? But God says so because that's how he created us. And so there's an inbuilt truth to our bodies. And I think that's what's been rejected, and not just on gender ideology, right? Gender ideology is kind of the, the culmination of, you know, an at least a 50 to 60-year sexual project um, since the sexual revolution. But you could say it's the culmination of a, you know, several hundred-year project starting with nominalism and voluntarism, and then a certain type of dualism, um, which you see in thinkers like Descartes and Locke. I mean, Locke has both a voluntaristic form of ethics and a dualistic form of personal identity. Ideas have consequences. We're speaking with Dr. Ryan Anderson. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. We're talking about the recent Supreme Court decision called Bostick, in which the court said that discrimination, anti-discrimination laws on the basis of sex also include sexual identity or gender identity and sexual orientation. Dr. Anderson, your book, the subtitle, Responding to the Transgender Moment, do you still believe this is a moment or is this one here to stay for perhaps a longer moment? (laughs) Uh, I still think this is a moment uh, in, in the same way that you could think of other ideologies that go against human nature. They don't have sustaining power because you can only rail against human nature for so long. Now, it is an open question of how long will this moment be? You know, I had borrowed, I didn't create the phrase transgender moment. I I borrowed that. I can't remember if it was Time Magazine or CNN, you know, declared back in 2015 that it was a transgender moment because I think it was the first time that a transgender actor had won a Golden Globe or an Emmy or something like that. And, you know, Caitlyn Jenner was now the woman of the year. And so they, they had compiled all of these kind of like cultural touchstones to say, look, we're living in the transgender moment. And my argument is that we need to do whatever we can to make this moment as short as possible, because this moment isn't a victory for civil rights. This moment that we're living in is leading to a lot of harm for a lot of people. There are human costs to getting human nature wrong. And this is particularly clear in the people who transition and then detransition, who regret uh, what they've done to their bodies, what they've done to their lives, what they've done to their identities, and who want to reclaim, you know, get back into contact with reality, including the reality of their own bodies. So I, so I think to a certain extent, what I wanted to do with the, the subtitle is say, look, we are living in a transgender moment, CNN or Time Magazine, whoever, they got that right. And the question is, how long will this moment last? And then the answer to that question is, it depends on what people like you and me do, right? If people like you and me go along with the lie, if we refuse to speak out, if we refuse to do what we can uh, to make the moment short, the moment will last much longer than it needs to. But I think ultimately, like, this isn't, you know, right side of history type talk, because 
no moment or movement can last for that long if it cuts against the grain of nature, uh, particularly cuts against the grain of human nature. That's a, an important segue to my final question, and you're talking about the legal imposition of an inhumane ideology that has that creates misery and has consequences. We lived through that in the 20th century, and it was a brutal struggle, and dissent was silenced, and sometimes very brutally. How do we live not by lies, as the phrase goes, in this new era of gender ideology when corporations are uh, mandating conformity, when the culture's mandating conformity, what are some ways that we can make that moment shorter and proclaim uh, that biology isn't bigotry and, and live the truth of the human person? Yeah, great question. And, and you know, the, the, the allusion to Solonitsyn with the live not by lies also should call to mind, especially to, you know, our, our audience, uh, to John Paul II, right? I mean, we've had a leader who lived under kind of an ideology that cut against the grain of human nature that imposed kind of speech codes and silencing and canceling. And his response, you know, kind of pithy as can be, was be not afraid, right? When he went back to his homeland of Poland, that was his message. When he was first announced as Pope, that was his message, be not afraid. And another lesson to learn here is back when he was just Karol Wojtyla, right? when he was a young bishop attending the Second Vatican Council, his diagnosis of you know, what has gone wrong with the 20th century was that we got anthropology wrong, that the two world wars, the Holocaust, um, the concentration camps, the killing fields, the forced labor camps, the totalitarian regimes, they all rested on a lie about human nature. They all rested on a faulty anthropology. He then extended that analysis in Evangelium Vitae to the abortion Holocaust. And if he were with us in the flesh today, he would be extending it to uh, the redefinition of marriage, now the redefinition of, of gender. And so his lessons here would be we have to recapture a sound anthropology, a sound understanding of the creature made in the image and likeness of God, both a theology of the body and a philosophy of the body, a science of the body, a sociology of the body. Right? We, we need to pull faith and reason, fetus et ratio, together to illuminate all of the truths of the human person. And then we need to have the courage to stand up and say those truths, stand up and defend those truths. And that's where I think um, one aspect of like the solidarity movement we can learn from is the importance of not going it alone. Right? Just in the very literal sense of solidarity, we need partners, we need teammates, we need alliances, we need people supporting us, which also means we need to support people uh, when they stick their necks out on the line and they say unpopular truths. Like We need to be supporting someone like Walt Heyer, a man who in middle age transition, lived as a woman for eight years and regretted it, detransitioned. He's now in his 70s. He's sharing his story, and YouTube just removed a video of him sharing his story because they say it violates their uh, terms of service, right? We, We need to be championing the people, defending the people, encouraging the people like Walt who have that courage, who are speaking out, and then learning from them. Courage can be contagious. So can cowardice, right? And so Aristotle teaches that you learn the virtues not by thinking about the virtues and talking about the virtues. You learn the virtues by living them out and by emulating other people who live them out. I think that's what we need to, to do within the Catholic community is, is, is rally around each other, encourage each other. Um, even the idea of encourage, right? <laughs> that's how, if you want to know how do you get the courage, start doing it. Start encouraging others. Start emulating others. Form networks uh, of support. 
And and then at the bottom line is just be not afraid because um, if what you're doing is defending truth, and if we know that truth is a person, right? If truth is Christ, if truth is the Holy Spirit, um, then the ultimate victory has already been won, and we're just called to bear witness to the truth, right? Which is kind of a universal Christian vocation, right? Uni- universal vocation to holiness and a vocation of bearing witness to the truth. We have to habituate living the truth. So that, what a great way to end our discussion. There's, we could go on and on about this important topic, but we're grateful to Dr. Ryan Anderson for his time today on the Bridge Builder program. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, an absolutely invaluable book. Uh, Dr. Anderson, we're grateful for your winsome witness and defense of the truth in the public square. I know of our prayers and gratitude for your good work, and thanks again for joining us on the Bridge Builder. Thank you. Uh, happy to be with you today. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what have you got in today's mailbag? Yeah, so in 2012, Minnesota voters were asked whether to redefine marriage in the state's constitution, thereby allowing for same-sex couples to legally wed. So today's question comes from a listener who asked, why was that issue put on the ballot? Why do other issues not get on the ballot? Well, first of all, just a clarification, the voters weren't asked to redefine marriage. What they were asked to do is retain and put the definition of marriage in the Constitution to prevent judges from overruling it. And so it would have to be a legislative decision if marriage is going to be redefined. Voters, unfortunately, rejected that amendment. And then shortly thereafter, of course, as we predicted, the legislature redefined marriage in in 2013. So the, the question is, you know, why don't we have referenda like California, direct democracy? Why don't we vote on issues? We only have constitutional amendments here. Constitutional amendments have to pass the legislature by a basic majority of each house. Then they go to voters. But amending the Constitution is a significant thing, and it's only done very rarely in Minnesota. So we don't have ballot referenda where we vote on issues. We rely on legislators to adjudicate those questions. And so controversial issues typically aren't put to voters. We thought that the definition of marriage was so important that it'd be worth having in our Constitution as being part of our fundamental law. Uh, unfortunately, voters disagreed and I think had a little bit of buyer's remorse when the subsequent legislature redefined marriage. But that's the rationale behind why we don't have referenda. It's just simply not part of our state constitutional process. Wonderful. Thank you. And before we go, we want to leave our listeners with some practical takeaways. What do you have in this week's Bricklayer segment? Well, this week, listeners can reach out to their members of Congress in support of Catholic school students and and non-public schools. Catholic schools across the nation are suffering the effects of financial hardship brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. So Catholic schools had to respond to the public health crisis. We had to close our schools, transition to online learning, embrace a whole new series of protocols and practices. This costs a significant amount of resources. Our student populations, some of whom are facing financial hardship, aren't able to enroll again. And it's putting a financial strain on Catholic schools that will make it difficult for some of them to reopen in the fall. Catholic schools are a great blessing to the community. They help create a ladder out of poverty for many. There's a big myth that 
Catholic schools and non-public schools are these wealthy institutions with big endowments. That's rarely the case. In fact, most serve low- and middle-income populations. They run on a shoestring budget and a kind of a hand-to-mouth ministry that's supported by the parish. So they're very fragile financial institutions, but important ministries, not only for evangelization, but also for helping to create that ladder out of poverty for so many, and, and so many in our rural and urban settings together accomplish that great goal. Without immediate aid, there are concerns across the country that Catholic schools are going to enclose and mass. So your voice is needed in support of Catholic schools. Congress is negotiating the next phase of COVID-19 relief funding. In mid-May, the House passed the HEROES Act, which excludes almost all non-public school students from eligibility for emergency services. That's why when a new bill is created in conjunction with the Senate and, and President Trump, that it includes relief for all Catholic schools and non-public schools and to assist those non-public school students. You can contact your members of Congress, especially Minnesota Senators Amy Klobuchar and Tina Smith, and ask them to support COVID-19 relief for all non-public school students. We have an action alert set up on our website that allows you to easily send a message or call your members. Simply go to mncatholic.org slash action center and click on COVID relief funding for Catholic schools. That's all the time we have for today. Listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send us any of your comments or questions to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Then tune in next week to see if we included your question or comment. Remember that you can always catch up on past episodes of the Bridge Builder Show by visiting us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or searching for us on your favorite podcast app. Just say, Alexa, find me the Bridge Builder Show, and Alexa will pull it up. Thank you for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. God bless your day.